there were white knuckle knights. The problem is the white knuckle knights all come because people can't see as far as you can see or as far as you think you can see. The goal here is that the biggest challenge that we have is that I believe that today's companies are very short-term focused. We all know that. On Wall Street, we know that. Large companies are not very good at doing anything other than preserving their current way of life. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 95 of the program happening right now, and we're excited about today because it's part one of a two-part series with Eight Rivers Capital. Today, we're going to sit down and talk with Mr. Bill Brown, co-founder of Eight Rivers, and of course, their subsidiary, Net Power. But what we're excited about with Mr. Brown, touch on a little bit of the origin story uh, of Eight Rivers, as well as just his extremely impressive career over a number of different industries, and of course, some of the philosophy philosophies that have powered Eight Rivers and Mr. Bill Brown and one of the why they are one of the premier net zero leaders in the world. And of course, all you got to do is look at some of the partnerships and what they're doing in the space that speaks for itself. And of course, uh, it's just been a tremendous week here at Zero Week and couldn't be more proud to sit down with Mr. Bill Brown and the Eight Rivers team. But before we get to Mr. Bill Brown, let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas, or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at 1-866-ERENEW1 or visit us at erenew.net. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can find out more about the company over at our website, erenewable.com. And then, of course, check us out on LinkedIn as well, erenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. Give us a follow on LinkedIn. And then, of course, you can get spotlighted, highlighted, however you want to put it, on our Follower Friday podcast series over on LinkedIn. It does have the internet going nuts. You'll be glad that you did. Give us a follow. Do it today. All right, let's get right down to it. Mr. Bill Brown, part one of our two-part series on Eight Rivers Capital here at Zero Week. This is Mr. Bill Brown. Very interesting. I was on Wall Street in, in 2007, and there were three events that happened then that made it very clear to me that the world was going to blow up. And uh, one was, was an event in, in January of 07 where every year we had this conference in Aspen, and we flew in some of the biggest, brightest portfolio managers in the world and we had a credit economist who said, let me tell you why if this subprime market goes, it's going to go really badly. And everyone in the room sort of nodded their head like, and rolled their eyes and said, S&P knows what they're doing. If they say it's AAA, it's AAA. And so none of the people in the room wanted to listen to this guy. So denial is number one. The second thing that happened was March of 07. Uh, the Reserve Bank governor in New Zealand did a, actually a news conference. 
and he put a, up this inverted pyramid that showed that all the debt in the world was 13 times world GDP. And he says the world is over leveraged. And so I spent time with some Morgan Stanley customers and said, you know, this guy says the world's over leveraged. We had a guy at our Aspen conference who said, when this goes, the whole stack will collapse. No one wanted to believe it. Everyone was a denier. And then in the third quarter of, of 07, Morgan Stanley got a multi-billion dollar hole in its balance sheet by taking the bet that our credit economists said, don't take. What this taught me is that there's no end to people wanting to deny reality and that uh, Wall Street was going to blow up because it had a lot of leverage to work through to unwind all those trades. Yeah. And at that point, I said to a buddy of mine from MIT, I said, you know, Wall Street's getting ready to blow up. The thing I have not done in my career, I really haven't done technology like I was trained in at MIT. I'd like to get back to my technology roots. And when we got back to those roots, I focused on a world that had a lot of deniers. Just like the Wall Street world had a lot of deniers. Yeah for the subprime. Okay. I see how huge denial can be in creating opportunities for others. And that's what happened. Humans have always been uh, people who want to chase, they, they tend to be herd, operate as herds. And everyone on Wall Street had on the same trade. Everyone was thought the subprime market is the place to be, that if Moody's and S&P said, we'll give a AAA rating to a bunch of debt, and that magically, somehow, you earned a lot of extra basis points of return by investing in this AAA debt than you would do by investing in U.S. government AAA debt. And people were willing to believe that something that shouldn't be true was true. Jumping ahead real quick, are you seeing some of the same scary similarities and correlations with some of the thought processes and what's going on right now in the energy transition versus what was going on 15 years ago? Absolutely. We are, we are in one long path of denial unwind. Mm -hmm. The first piece of denial was there is no climate problem. A bunch of people come out and they said, let's attack the established status quo and it's going to be renewables. It's going to be solar and wind. Well, at one point then the solar and wind people become the incumbents. And they say it's only going to be solar and wind. So the solar and wind people were just like the oil people. They said it's only going to be oil. Now the solar and wind people say it's only going to be solar and wind. And then they poo-poo nuclear and carbon capture and, and hydrogen and everything else because they want their technology to win. So we're in a very long path of unwinding denial. And it will be, when we get to the very bottom of it, it will be all of the above, not any one of the above. What was the reception like for you? Piggybacking off what we were just talking about, you're a die-in-the-wool Wall Street guy. What the hell did you know about technology? How did you overcome that? Because despite all the pelts on the wall that you had, despite the career you'd had on Wall Street, you're not a technology guy. You're not an energy guy. How did you overcome that? The fact is, when, when I was on Wall Street, I built up a lot of credibility with people. And, and when I was on Wall Street, I learned how to get access to people. At the same time, 
credibility and access uh, still don't uh, overcome the you got to be kidding me uh, piece. Everyone's got their you got to be kidding me button in them. And, and so it, it's, it's like any sort of evangelism. It starts one convert at a time. Okay. And then five converts and 100 converts, 500 converts, you've got a church. I say this having grown up in the mountains of Western North Carolina as a Southern Baptist. And I had my own share of uh, revivals that would come through every year trying to convert people. But it's the same sort of thing. You've got to, you've got to reach people's hearts. You've got to reach people's minds. And you've got to pull them along with you. When did you know you were on the right path? What was that aha moment when you felt like you had the converts? The first moment was in 2011 when we, when we had filed all the patents two years earlier on the Allen Fetfit cycle. We were starting to get people who were well-reasoned people, very intelligent people, say, you've got something here. But it's one thing to get a bunch of well-reasoned intellectual people to say, you've got something here. It's another thing to get people to put their money in it. The moment that Shaw Power Group invested in Net Power, one of the Eight Rivers subsidiaries, back in, in 2012, some of the people at Eight Rivers thought, oh, this is it, this is success. And it wasn't success. It's just another step along a very long road. I mean, keep in mind, Tesla was founded uh, at this point two decades ago. And yet, we don't remember that for the first 10 years of Tesla, everyone thought that Elon was crazy. So you've got to spend a lot of time investing in your vision. But the most important thing you can have is the vision. The most interesting thing about E Rivers, we started out in 09, we found Rodney Allen, and we put that whole technology together. Before that, how was, how was it going? Well, uh, we didn't know what Eight Rivers was going to do. Okay. Eight Rivers, I just thought that uh, I was going to take some of my uh, gains from Wall Street, invest in a, in a new uh, venture capital company, and we would go out and do perhaps a bunch of web apps or who knows what. I just wanted to get back to my technology roots. Okay. And then the Recovery Act came along under the Obama administration, yeah. and it had this big item in there for clean coal. And we looked at that item and we thought, oh, well, let's go for that. So we started on clean coal. And originally when we created Eight Rivers, I thought it was all about inventing something new. Okay. You know, I thought, oh, you've just got to go create something new. You've got to go patent a bunch of things. And so we, we'd obviously brought in Shaw Power Group in 2012 uh, to put uh, money into net power. Then we brought in... Uh, Exelon in 2014 to put money into that power. Uh, then we, uh, in 2018, we brought in Occidental Petroleum. But somewhere around 2016, there were three things that I realized. Number one, the things that we thought were going to work needed some level of rethinking, and we needed some mid-course corrections. The other thing I realized is that 
inventing something new is hard. And here I was in 2016, I realized that that time I actually wanted to go bring in Baker Hughes okay. in 2016. 2016, the, the other thing that happened, the, the final thing is that I realized that we need to deduce that the world, that the Alan Fetnett cycle was not the big answer. It was an answer. Okay. It was not the big answer. And back then, uh, I was known as this first uh, person in, 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 the, in the, the wilderness saying it's going to be hydrogen. And, and I came back to the Eight Rivers Group, and the Eight Rivers Group, I said, we've got to go all in on hydrogen and figure it out. Because I think that the, we need hydrogen to, to move this ecosystem. Okay. But I, here are our rules. Number one, I don't want to make hydrogen a transportation fuel. I think hydrogen's an interesting transportation fuel, but we've already got the Teslas of the world putting a lot of money into, into electricity as a transportation uh, energy source. So I don't want to fight that. So hydrogen has to be cheap enough that it uh, replaces natural gas. Second thing is we cannot invent any new piece of equipment. Net power, Allen Fett cycle is our purple Lego block. I don't want any more purple Lego blocks. I just want red, yellow, green, blue. And at this point, um, when we created the hydrogen piece, the team came in and said, Bill, we can do clean hydrogen at a dollar a kilo and slightly below a dollar a kilogram. And a kilogram of hydrogen and a gallon of gasoline have roughly the same energy content. So that's why people in part talk about kilograms of hydrogen. So it gives you a sense of what a gallon of gasoline looks like too. Okay. So they said, we can do it a little below a dollar a kilo. And I said, that's just a transportation fuel, not interested. So we put it on the shelf. Then 45Q comes along and it's, hey, Bill, we can now get hydrogen at 70 cents. I say, that's still not good enough. Keep it on the shelf. And then at some point, one of the big national oil companies came into us and asked us, uh, could the Allen Fett that cycle work on sour gas, which is gas with a lot of hydrogen sulfide? We didn't know anything about sour gas. 40% of the world's gas is sour, and half of that is so sour it's worthless. And we looked at sour gas and we realized the things we know, we could make, we could clean up sour gas. Okay. And that 20% of the world's gas that is so sour, it's worthless. We can clean that up. Yeah. And so if we take a really cheap feedstock like that, we can now make hydrogen at prices approaching 35 cents a kilo. At 35 cents a kilo, that's around $3 a million BTU. You do the math on whether that's a natural gas substitute. Absolutely. So we got to that point. Yeah. And for that, it's very clear to me that as valuable as, as you know, net power is, the hydrogen's even more valuable. Yeah. And uh, we're now at the point, we're now at the point in the world that everything we develop at Eight Rivers is red, yellow, green, blue Legos. 
we can get full guarantees on everything. We don't need to go build new turbines or anything new. And that's, that's where Eight Rivers is today. So the interesting thing is that we, we started out as a technology development company, but then we realized that it's not technology development that's the key to the future. Rather, it's business model. Think about it. We are able to make hydrogen because so cheap, because we're using something no one else wanted, uh, that's in a huge, huge inventory abundance that has, um, we integrate it with other systems yeah. that not only produce hydrogen, but also produce electricity. So we're a cogeneration uh, strategy. And by doing all that, we make hydrogen a lot cheaper, power a lot cheaper. It's like Amazon. In 1990, the 10 biggest companies in, in the U.S. were, you know, General Motors was one, IBM was one, there are three or four oil companies in there, Sears was in there, and Sears, think about it, in 1990, Sears was flying high, it was one of the biggest companies on the planet. Yeah. It owned mail order. It owned mail order. Yeah. And if anybody should have done the Amazon model, it should have been Sears. And yet, they were too busy focusing on becoming anchor stores and malls. They were too busy focusing on the competition of Walmart and the big box stores. And yet, what is Amazon? It's not new technology. It's just a business model that integrates Sears, IBM, Cisco, and FedEx. All into one. All into one. That's what Amazon is. And that is what is going to be, and that's what Eight Rivers and SK believe is going to be the future of the energy systems of the world. It will not be a technology. It will be an integration of silos that have otherwise been kept separate. What was the plan for the alum Fet vet before the sour gas idea came across? Well, we were originally thinking just making a power plant that gets deployed like any other power plant, except instead of being combined cycle power plants, or coal power plants, it was an Alamfet that cycle power plant. And I don't know when this happened, Fred. At some point around 2015, 2016, you have to keep in mind, when I was on Wall Street, I started reverting back to what I did on Wall Street. When I was on Wall Street, I would walk into any portfolio manager's office or corporate treasurer's office, and in my own head, I had all these little components. I knew debt markets, I knew equity markets, I knew commodity markets, I knew interest rate curves, I knew options, swaps, all this stuff. I had all these things floating around my head. And I would sit there talking to someone and, and say, what is, tell me what's going on in your world. What's your problem? Yeah. An example of this is one time I was, I'd gone down to, this is before the merger of Mobile and, and Exxon. Uh, Mobile's offices were in Fairfax, Virginia. I go down to and sit in the corporate treasurer's office and said, Will, what is this billion dollars on your balance sheet here? You got a billion dollar asset sitting here. Oh, that's my, that's my platinum. So a billion dollars of platinum, Will, that's a huge number. I'll tell you what, why don't I buy that from you for a billion dollars? I'll pay you a billion dollars cash and I'll lease it back to you because you use it as a catalytic converter in your processes. I'll just lease it back to you. And he says, wow, Bill, that's excellent. So, you know, Will didn't realize 
that he had a billion dollars worth of, he had, he thought his asset of a billion dollars had no liquidity whatsoever. That was just going to sit on his balance sheet. And I said, we can give you liquidity for this. But that was just on the basis of something that was in my head. Yeah. And so, so starting in 2015, 2016, I started realizing we go into customers and we listen to the customers and they may want a power plant, but we had one, one company that wanted a power plant. And I said to one of the guys at Eight Rivers, I said, well, tell me more about the company. What do they do at this facility? Oh, they need a lot of steam. I said, wow, we can integrate the steam and the power plant and make both of them cheaper. The point here is that rather than coming to someone with a power plant widget, you meet your customers where they are and you decide what their net zero needs are. And if it requires giving them a power plant, an electrolyzer, a hydrogen plant, a steam plant, uh, I don't care what it is. You have all these things in your head that you know how to put together and you can assemble the solution for them and you're no longer in the world of, of selling a product. You're in a world of doing what I used to do on Wall Street and that was actually selling other people's products and getting paid to put things together. How long did it take you to get comfortable going into these places to discuss what they needed or to get a breakdown of what they did and how you could make it better. Fred, it's sort of like when I first started it, uh, I, I was a lawyer first and then I went to Goldman Sachs. And when I first started at Goldman, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman was the uh, tax lawyer on my deals when I was a lawyer. And he pulled me into Goldman and, and had me build a few businesses for him at Goldman. But I had no idea, I had to learn on my own. So every time I walked into a customer at Goldman. I learned their needs and then I would go back to strategists or traders and others and sort of talk about how we can meet those needs. And slowly over time, you build up this portfolio, but it's really ultimately an approach. You know, you also see that I taught at Duke. Yeah. And uh, as, a, as a professor, you end up, the funny thing is, most people think professors are the source of a bunch of knowledge. I think I learn more from my kids than they learn from me because they always ask those questions that you maybe never thought to ask. And that's what's interesting about customers. They'll ask you questions and you'll see situations that you did not expect. It's, the, it's sort of like you need to be humble and you need to be a listener and you cannot be a peddler. The first thing you have to do is listen to your customer and you have to start with their wallet. And when I say start with their wallet, you need to figure out how you make them rich. And if you start with knowing what, what gets them paid and what makes them successful and what makes them happy, and if that's what you do, you make them happy, financially successful, you will have all the business in the world. The problem is too many people come in peddling. Too many people come in and say, I got something to sell you. I want you to buy it. You need to start with your customer and their human needs. Number one, how do they get paid? How do they make money? If you start there, you'll never, ever go wrong.
We've talked a little bit about some of the partnerships you guys have developed, and I want to congratulate you on the SK Group announcement Monday night. How important was it for you guys to make that announcement here at Sarah Week? Many, oh gosh, I don't remember when it was. It could have been roughly 2016-ish. Don't hold me on this one. The Allen Fetbet cycle was recognized at Sierra Week as being one of the breakthrough technologies a long, long time ago. And that was back when the Agora was a bunch of glass walled off rooms over on that bridge of the Hilton. And it was a tiny little thing. And, um, and so this was, the goal here was to bring back to Syrah what Syrah helped us start. Was there ever a doubt in your mind that you weren't going to make it or that maybe you guys were just spinning your wheels? There were some just long white knuckled nights trying to get to figure this whole thing out. No, there, there were white knuckle nights. The problem is the white knuckle nights all come because people can't see as far as you can see or as, as far as you think you can see. And the goal here is that the biggest challenge that we have is that I believe that today's companies are very short-term focused. We all know that. On Wall Street, we know that. Clay Christensen, who, who wrote a number of books from Harvard Business School, and he wrote, talked about innovators' paradox and dilemma. And, and um, the large companies are not very good at doing anything other than preserving their current way of life. And, um, and they're, they're very focused on, on the next quarter, the next year, the next two years. And when you overlay, when you bring a vision strategy into a company, it doesn't normally sit very well uh, inside of a normal corporate world because they're wanting to know, what are you doing for me today? And so I think the biggest challenge that we've always had is that, that mismatch. So it's the, the vision that has kept us going. We have to keep our eye on the ultimate destination. At the same time, we have to execute too. And so I do think that, I think many of the, our partners had more white knuckles than I did because I had every confidence in the world that we were going to, to succeed. I had every confidence in the world with everything I knew about what we're creating, that it worked, that it was effective, that we knew where we were going. It's, it's hard. You've got to bring everyone along with you. When you're looking at a company to partner with or when you're looking for somebody to bring onto the team, what are some of the most important attributes or characteristics that you consider before making that partnership? The four things I always look for in individuals is I look for interpersonal skills, how well they work with their subordinates, their superiors, how good of a team player they are. Number two, I look for analytical skills, how well people, are, how well people spot problems, solve problems, how elegant are the solutions, because elegance sort of tells you how smart they are. Number three, communication skills, written and oral. And number four, motivation and drive. And of all those, motivation and drive is the most important. Why? Because everyone comes to something with a deficit and something that they're not good with. That motivation and drive is necessary to get you over the speed bumps and the potholes. And that motivation and drive is what is necessary to keep you on the road. It's your fuel. 
What's the one thing about Eight Rivers that you hold most dear to your heart? The number eight comes from Asia, where eight is lucky. And if you see my business card, you'll see the eight rivers is written up the side of the business card. So the eight sits there as an infinity symbol. And the rivers piece is be the water. Water is agnostic. It doesn't know whether it's going to flow forward, left, right, backwards. It will just flow. And after a while, you'll have the Grand Canyon. We've got to be the water. We've got to be agnostic. We've got to flow. And if you do that, nothing can resist you. Of all the things you've done over what's been a very storied career and the accolades that you've accomplished, and Lord knows there's still plenty more uh, left in the trophy room, what are you most proud of? I'm actually most proud of my family. and I, I, it's, The family is is the way that whatever I've created continues. Uh, and it's not just my genetic family, but it's also the Eight Rivers family. It's those people that you find in your life who come together with you and that allow you to go forward and provide that support. It's that partnership. It's that calming effect. It's that emboldening effect. It's all about the people. I cannot read enough. Okay. And it is just, I keep learning all the time. That's what keeps me motivated, is learning, is, you know, having someone like you ask me questions here and having me think about it. It's, there's always something new that you'll learn every day. Yeah. That and doing a top to bottom run, bombing run on Snowbird, on skis. Okay. Fred, listen, thank you so much for all you do. I know that I tell people that the San Francisco Chronicle was a key in the creation of Silicon Valley simply because it reported on what innovators were doing and got their story out there. You're doing the same thing here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Bill Brown. Don't forget, part two of this series will be in April when we sit down with their president and chief development officer, Mr. Damian Beauchamp. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and, of course, over on our website, eRenewable.com. Also, too, stay tuned for the UH Green Insider Gone Red podcast series. It's an eight-part series that we're doing with the U of H Energy Umbrella as well as the Energy Coalition over there at the university. We're very, very excited about that, so stay tuned. Make sure you're following us on LinkedIn. Give us a follow on Twitter as well e-renew 2020 you will be glad you did and then finally as always got to give a huge shout out to the e-renewable team and mike roger al thank you guys so much and of course all the guests and the audience as well this has been the green insider podcast powered by e-renewable we make going green easier